starting a new series called The Games, and we're looking at how Scripture incorporates sports in its analogies about living the Christian life. And someone this morning already asked me, um, they're a little nervous and scared, and I said, it's okay. Uh, we're only going to be doing about five minutes of jumping jacks and push-ups at the beginning, and then we're going to work our way further in this series. No, uh, no exercise required, uh, because that would mean I'd have to demonstrate my exercise powerlessness, which consists of being able to get up and out of a chair to a refrigerator and back in under 30 seconds. That's quite a feat. Uh, but Scripture doesn't use it in a humorous way. It uses it in a very serious way. And over the last hundred years, there's been a major cultural shift in our society regarding sports. A hundred years ago, if you were talking about uh, lunch in, with someone that you just met, sports would not be one of the subjects that comes up. I know that several years ago when we moved here to Colorado, one of the first questions my friends would ask, are you now a Denver Broncos fan? Is that why you're moving there? It's part of our culture, our life, just simply to make sports a very real part of our conversation. So much so that in 2018, just last year, we spent over $56 billion attending professional and amateur sporting events in the United States. That's how much we spent when we went out to go to sporting events. In addition to that, we spent $33 billion on kids' sporting events. And on top of that, we spent another $19 billion on gym memberships. I have in the past been part of that $19 billion didn't last long. So over $108 billion was spent on professional, amateur, and kids sporting events. And that's not talking about recreational sporting events. If we went to recreational sporting, that number would be closer to $400 billion in the United States. All recreational sporting events. To put that in comparison and perspective, the United States spent $80 billion on lottery tickets last year. They spent $65 billion on soda and sports drinks. They spent $62 billion on cosmetics and $50 billion in charity and churches. Just to put that in perspective, sports is one of those number one extracurricular activities that we spend a lot of money on. It's very important in our culture. Not so much 100 years ago, but today it is our bread and butter. In fact, I think, how many of you know who the Denver Broncos are playing today at 1 o'clock? All right. A good third of the people. All right. See, because that, that's part of our culture. And so when Scripture starts to talk sports to us, I think that's a big wake-up call for us. I think that's one of those things that we can go, hey, I can connect here. Now we're talking our language. If you want to talk about the Trinity and the eternity of God, it's really hard to grasp those kind of concepts that Jesus Christ is fully God, became man, and lived in the flesh. Those are sometimes philosophical type of questions. It's hard to get your hands around. But we're talking sports. Now that's something I can relate to. Those are my kind of people that... Uh, we're going to look at Paul and his discussion regarding that 
in First Corinthians chapter nine. Sports has a role in scripture, and that role is to describe our focus, our discipline, and our perseverance that disciples of Jesus Christ must have. We are called to be disciples. If we are born again believers of Jesus Christ, if we are in His family, then we are called to be disciples. And part of the way that God encourages us to live as a disciple is to give us sports metaphors and illustrations to connect. I go, oh, I know what that means. Now do this in our spiritual life. Oh, I know how that's done. Now I do that in my spiritual life. So it is an encouragement for every part of our culture to get involved in spiritual things and living the disciple life. And we see that first and foremost in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24. I'm going to read through these real quick, and then we're going to go back to it. It's not a long passage, so if you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 9, or your version Bible app to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24, I'm reading four verses. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. That very first verse, verse 24, kind of sets the stage for this illustration of sports and the Christian life. And the first thing that Paul brings up is this idea of first place. He says it there in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. First place. Very few headlines are made about second place, third place, fourth place, the last place. First place is the prize. Gold medal winner, that's the prize. The one who wins the Super Bowl, that's the prize. That's what you remember. My family kind of roped me into watching a Netflix show this past summer called Baby Ballroom. It is exactly what you think it is. It's about little kids learning how to dance, winning prizes, ballroom dancing style. I was hooked because it was fun. Uh, but the one reoccurring thing that came up time and time and time again, all these little kids and helicopter parents who were involved in spending thousands of dollars a month getting their kids ready to ballroom dance and win prizes, the only thing those parents and those kids wanted was the first place trophy. Second place trophy meant nothing to them. Third place trophy meant nothing. Coming in sixth place meant nothing. It was first place only. And it was comical and sad <laughs> in a way at the same time to hear these six-year-olds talking about first place is all that matters. First place is all that matters. First place is all that matters. If I get second place, then I fail. Now that's kind of tough to put on a six-year-old kid. 
but they do it in a very comical way. It, it's really funny. I, I thought it was a fantastic introduction to a world I had no clue about whatsoever. But I understand what first place means, and I understand what second place means, and there is a huge difference in emotion and a huge difference of respect and a huge difference in how the world views it and treats it. In our day and age, it's kind of gotten muddled over the last several years where everyone sort of wins a trophy if they show up. And, and it kind of has devalued the desire for first place because everybody gets a trophy, everybody gets a certificate, everyone gets a ceremony, everyone is celebrated. And it kind of devalues what it means to put in the effort to get first place. But first place is the goal. Everyone who starts that race, as Paul says, maybe a marathon in this case, first place is the goal. I don't know of anyone that said, as a goal, as a goal, I want to get second place. Now, you might be happy with second place, but I don't know of anyone who just goes and says, I'm going to train, and I'm going to train, and I'm going to train, and I hope my desire, my wish is to get the silver medal. Everybody wants the gold. Paul's not saying that's wrong. He's saying that's vital, that's necessary, and that we run the race, and he's speaking of the Christian life at the end of that, we run the, way, we run the race, we live the Christian life as if first place is all that matters. First place. says that's natural. 
It's natural to want to win. It is natural to want to succeed at the Christian life. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Live your life for Christ in such a way that God looks at your life that day and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And if you honestly can say that is how God is responding to your day, that is how he would respond to that situation, that problem that you face, if you really believe honestly, God can look at my life and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, then you are running in such a way as to grab hold of that prize. And if you wonder to yourself, I don't think God could say that to me. I think the way I responded in this situation, God would probably say <laughs> to me like he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He's going to say one of those two things about our day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Or your head wasn't in the game at all, was it? You were just pretending this whole time. And it's become noticeable now in the way that you treat others and in the way you have treat the relationship you have with me from God's perspective. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul also says this about this aspect of winning the race. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 7, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, this is not a verse, and I've heard this said, and Maybe sometimes I actually practice it. He says, you know, uh, physical training is of little value compared to spiritual training. He's not saying physical training is valueless. He's not saying it's not important. He's not saying you shouldn't spend time, money, and energy on that. He's just saying that there's a balance here that you need to see. That while physical training, yes, does help you, spiritual training is far greater, far more important. Far more value because it lasts, as he says in this verse, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. What value is it to the life to come to always be in first place? To maybe be the strongest, the fastest, the most limber, the most active. It has value today. I get to live longer and maybe a healthier life and less pain, less suffering. I totally get that. But in eternity, when death comes, and death comes to the most healthy persons, the strongest of people, the fastest of people, they cannot, they cannot outrun death. And so Paul says, while we have the example of physical exercise and discipline in the body, let's not forget the most valuable thing is to discipline our own hearts and souls to be godly. Not muscular, but godly. But to do it in the same way, with the same passion, with the same emphasis, with the same dedication, with the same goal in mind, I want to live Christ in front of others so that they would notice it. I think it's very noticeable uh, if someone works out. If someone is diligent and they work out and they're lifting weights and they're doing exercises and they're eating healthy and well, I think it's noticeable. 
in that person's disease, whether it be a man or a woman, I think it's noticeable. It should be just as noticeable if you are living a godly life with great passion and purpose and discipline. It should be just as noticeable. Wow, they have vision. Man, love and passion. They're understanding. They're easy to talk with and they speak truth and they don't compromise and they're not all over the place. They're, they're narrowly focused on pleasing God. It should be noticeable. More noticeable than your physical trial. More noticeable than your endurance. More noticeable than your health. It should be God's I fear, as the numbers we looked at at the beginning, we spend $108 billion on professional and amateur sports activities and $50 billion on the work of God. There's an imbalance. There's an imbalance of priorities. I think those numbers should be switched. Just like our energy and dedication and interest in sports should take second place to our interest in living godly. Because living godly produces great fruit for the future. Whereas physical exercise, physical discipline, physical pursuits all end at the very same place. They do. And not to sound morbid, but they all end up dead. not a matter of one is right and one is wrong, but one is righter to a greater extent and one should be lesser of importance. I think a good test for this would be if you could in your own mind, if, if you're a sports person, and you can list maybe players on a sports team or uh, individuals who have won competitions, if you can go in your mind and you can list a whole bunch of those things, and then I ask you the question, where in Scripture would you find what is the greatest commandment? And you go, I learned that in Sunday school. And you have no idea where to find what God says is the answer to that. What is the greatest commandment? If you have more knowledge about sports than you do Scripture, I think you found your imbalance. Not that having knowledge of sports is wrong. Not at all. But it's a matter of it's a matter of importance. Paul continues in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 9 and says, Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. Strict training. There is not just the desire and the wish and the dream to be first, but if you want to be first, I don't know of a single athlete that will say, you just show up and you'll be first. In order to be first, something has to happen before. Yes, you have to show up. If you don't show up, you're never going to place. But when you show up, you have to be ready for it. You have to be precise in your physical qualities and your mental game. You have to be trained. You have to train in order to accomplish that. And Generally, the general standard is if you want to be good at something at a professional level, not, not the best, but at a professional level, you have to give yourself the 10,000 hours of practice. 
10,000 hours of practice. That gets you into, regardless of what the sport is, kind of a professional standard. And those that put in the time usually get the reward. Yes, there is talent involved. There is natural ability involved. And there are breaks in the game that you might get. And, of course, we have the whole thing about referees. You know, don't even get me started on that. But bottom line, it still is on your shoulders to win or lose. And if you want a greater chance of winning, you better train. You have to put effort into it. Which means, not only physically do I have to be fit and ready, but mentally I have to be fit and ready. It's not just about how much I can lift, but there's a mental component to every aspect of it. So, same with Scripture. It's not just I have to memorize Scripture. It's not just that I have to be physically fit. I, I know where to find everything. But it has to be internalized. It has to be part of my life, my lifestyle, my thoughts, my dreams, my hopes, my conversations. It has to simply spill over, not just in my knowledge, but in my heart. Because one without the other, there's going to be weakness. One without the other, there's going to be stumbling. I need both. I need that physical knowledge, and I also need it to impact my heart. Just like I need to lift weights, and I need to study my opponent, I, I need to be mentally ready for whatever sporting event I might be in. You need to be mentally ready, heart ready, physically ready to engage in the battles that God brings our way each and every day, testing and strengthening and growing whether or not I will stand for Christ or I will cave to the pressures of friends and family. He goes on to say that there are benefits. There's a huge benefit. We already saw that in 1 Timothy 4. The rest of verse 25 reads, They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So those that physically train for a sport, they get it in order to get that first place trophy, that gold medal, that wreath upon their head that used to be what winners of the Olympic Games used to get. It was just a wreath and no one else got anything. Physical exercise and physical sports wants one thing, that recognition of the number one. But Paul says what happens with that number one trophy, what happens with that wreath, what happens with that gold medal, is that over time, it fades away. Over time, someone can steal it. Over time, it can be lost. Over time, guess what? Someone else gets first place. Someone else gets the longest Here's where my sports kind of lacks. I, mean, I can't come up with illustrations here. But at some point, someone goes faster, someone lifts more, someone scores more, and what used to be number one is now number two, number three, number four, and now no longer even listed on the sports team. But that's not what it's like with eternal life. That's not what it's like in Christianity. That's not what it's like when we pursue godliness and make godliness our number one passion is we don't lose that relationship with God. It doesn't matter if I'm not as close to God as someone else. God says that relationship, we're family. And some family members feel a little bit more distant than other family members, but we're still family. We can't lose that relationship with God. We can't lose that relationship with Christ. The reward is eternal. And so the obvious question becomes, and it's one that we can all answer,
very easily, which in the long run is more important for your well-being for now and eternity, winning a gold medal or having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? It's obviously having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Obviously. Because that's eternal. And while I might have a gold medal for 30, 40, 50 years, kind of hung up somewhere in my trophy room, well, that whole trophy room one day disappears. I return to dust, and everyone that remembered my great accomplishments are gone. But the great accomplishment of having faith in Jesus Christ is always there. Because God says later on in the book of Revelations, I write your name down in the book of life. That is how certain our place is with God. He writes it down. Not to be forgotten. Not to be outdone. But right there. And to be in his book of life is far greater than being in the Guinness Book of World Records. Far better. Because it's eternal. He goes on to say... Uh, in uh, the next few verses, that we race with a purpose, that there is a goal in mind with our racing. It says in verse 26 and 27, Therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. There is nothing funnier than watching boxing, and a guy does a full swing, and the other guy ducks, and he just, it's funny when someone strikes out, to the point where they spin around in the batter's box. They swing, and they go all the way around. It's kind of funny when I see a professional basketball player who knows at some point during the game they're going to have to shoot a free throw. At some point during the game, they're going to shoot a free throw. I mean, the odds are greatly in favor. If you want to learn one shot in basketball, you have got to get the free throws shot down. Because odds are you're going to have more of those shots consistently. Just simply, they miss the entire rim of that board. I don't know how a professional player does that. And Paul, Paul speaks to that. We don't run as someone running aimlessly. We don't fight as a boxer beating the air. There's purpose. There's, there's precision to it. And Paul says, likewise, in the Christian life, there's purpose. We don't run aimlessly. We're not tossed to and fro. We don't run like chickens with our heads cut off. We're not missing the easy shots. We make it because that's our practice. That's our bread and butter. We have to do that. And he goes, no, the opposite is true in verse 27. I strike my body and make it a slave so that I have to go, so that when I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul says, hey, there's no aimlessness in the Christian life. In living godly, there is purpose and there is aim. I know what the target is, and I know that every time I come up to this temptation, I am going to be tempted, and I need to gain victory over it. And God says, you'll have victory. You might have to study. You might have to ask others. You might need accountability. You definitely need the Holy Spirit speaking to you in your heart. It's going to happen. How are you going to approach that? And Paul says, I'm going to approach it in a way so that when I'm facing that, my actions and my words so when I say I'm a pro at this, my actions better demonstrate it. If my words are, I'm godly, then my actions better demonstrate that. Because nothing is more clear 
that when someone calls themselves a professional and they can't make a free throw. Really? Really? How do you know? They can't make a pop. They can't throw a spiral pass. Or they can't throw a baseball faster than 50 miles an hour. I can tell you they're not a pro. All your words mean nothing if the actions aren't there to back it up. Paul says the same is true in the Christian life. Our words, they're important, but my actions speak my words. In James chapter 1, in verse 12, James, not Paul, says in chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because, having stood the test, that person will receive a crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Not necessarily talking about sports, but talking about perseverance, talking about trials, talking about overcoming something, talking about standing the test, passing the test. The one who stands for Christ, the one who stands for godliness, the one who has this relationship with Jesus Christ, and it shows, not just in words, but in actions. They're shooting for a prize. That is eternal life. Not to earn it, not to gain it, but to demonstrate that's where my name is. That's where my prize is. That's where my value is. That's where my treasure is. In heaven, in eternal things. And so the treasures of this world, while I might get a parade down Main Street for winning something, my main goal and main prize is to hear those words. Well done, my good, faithful servant. I cannot imagine any more comforting, exciting, and meaningful words that the Lord can say to anyone than well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because I live to get that pat on our live to make Christ known. I live to make his word real in my life. And that doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen just nebulously through the air. I gain that discipline to take action. We all put effort into things. We put effort into our education. We put effort into our jobs. We put effort into our relationships. We spend effort. And we spend money to demonstrate that effort is really important to us. Is godliness an important factor for you? Can you demonstrate, yes, Tim, this, 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 and this happened. And because these things discipline my godliness, make me godlier, I can tell you that this is true. I definitely can show that evidence that I spend time in godliness. Or would I be able to find more evidence that you like sports than you like godliness? Or like vacations? Or like home repairs? Or like, well, you fill in the blank. It doesn't have to be sports. But if there is anything more valuable to you, than godliness, than living for Christ, then your priorities are not right. They're not. Those other things can all be done. It's not an either or. 
If not, well, you're asking me to give up all of this leisure activity or these fun events or, or sports. No, no, no one's asking you for that. We're looking at measure of glory, and it's instrument glory. It's instrument is your relationship, and it's instrument with what? What has a Lord? And if our spending in America is any indication, our priorities are far greater on sports than it is on God's Coming home and taking a few things home for us. I think you have to be, I have to be very clear that I am not talking about having to have more prayer, more volunteering, more Bible reading, more tithing, and more devotional time. Adding more events and things that you check off at the beginning or the end of the day is not how you reach godliness. They're tools, but it's not all about how much you pray, how much you read, how much you give, how much serve. It's not all about that. Those are parts to the, to the regiment of becoming godly, yes, but not the most important. It's not the most vital. It's not the one that will give you the biggest payoff in the end. So I ask a question. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and intense self-control, we bring our bodies, our flesh, our mind, our emotions, dreams, thoughts, activities, and free time under the control of Jesus Christ. How can we do this? How can I today, Tim, start a new lifestyle where godliness becomes my passion and pleasing for everyone around me? How can that take place? What step can I take? And I think Paul gives us that step later on in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11. I think this is by far the number one thing that you can do to practice godliness in greater ways. One step. He says in chapter 5 and verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Paul looks at the church in Thessalonica and says, there's, there's lots of problems, a lot of things going well with you. One of the things that you're doing great, part of the Christian life, at the end of all this discussion of the Christian life, is that you are building people up. That the people around you are being built up. Now, he's not talking about more muscles and more protein and more exercise building up, more endurance being built up. He's talking about godliness. He's talking spiritually. I am spiritually encouraging those around me Run the race. Run for the prize. Run for godliness. Strengthen yourself in the things of the Lord. Protect yourself with his promises. Understand his word. Apply it and live it. And I think when we start to let others in on that by encouraging them, we gain great success. And I'll tell you a perfect example. Have you ever had to teach someone something? Just in general. Okay. Most of us have dropped something. Uh, teachers will probably be able to tell you this right away. Have you ever been asked to teach a subject that you were not 100% clear on, but in the process of teaching it, you became really well-versed in that topic? Absolutely. I remember my karate instructor telling me as I was starting to make progress up the ranks uh, that one day 
exercise, okay, uh, for the beginning class. And then eventually, uh, further and further up in experience and ability, I was able to start teaching some of the beginning classes. Man, when you get into a position like that where you have to teach fundamental things to others, you become really good at those fundamental things because you are constantly reminding yourself of the basic steps of how to do whatever activity that is or whatever class that is. And there was no greater teacher than having to teach it yourself. People have found that true? Yeah, I believe that's just a part of how God brings experiences and growth in our lives is when we teach others, we gain the benefit of being reassured and reinforced with those basics. And so the same is true in this case. If you want to live godly spiritual lives, then start talking to people about it. Start talking to people about how do you live a godly life when this kind of situation happens? How do you do it? And they say, well, I've done it this way, and sometimes it's worked, and sometimes it hasn't. But that's what Paul's talking about when he says, build each other up. Talk to each other about godly things. Make spiritual conversations just as important as sports conversations, or shopping conversations, or movies, or TV shows, or music, or whatever other thing there may be in your life. Make godly conversations more important. And this is the time where you can all point the fingers at Pastor Tim and say, you need to do that too, Pastor Tim. And I go, yes, you are absolutely right. I need to do that too. Let's pray. Father, you, uh, you certainly put some very pointed things in front of our lives this morning. You put priorities in front of our lives. You put effort in front of our lives. You put dedication. You put training. You put eternal life in front of our eyes today. Father, we have lots of activities. We have lots of priorities. We have lots of things that we need to get done during the day and during the week. Father, don't let godliness slip to the back. Don't let godliness just be one hour out of the entire week. Help us, Father, to encourage one another, lift one another up, come alongside one another. So that it might be said of us here at Calvary, hey, that's just nice what you actually do. Father, let us run after Godliness more than anything else in life. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen.